17. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. Um, For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life until God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jill, for reading for us this morning. Who did God send to save you? You ever thought about it? Processed it? How it is that the mission of God reached you? How many people did that proclamation, that announcement, that message have to go through in order to reach you? It's thousands of years that it's been passed down. How many miles did it have to travel as it zigzagged across to the person who ended up telling you the life-changing news of Jesus? Who did God send to save you? How did the mission of God reach you? And that video that you saw there is evidence of something. Evidence that there are people on our staff that know people from different places. People who love Jesus, who God has saved. People from different tribes, tongues, languages, and people who are now or sometime around the now-ish worshiping the same Jesus we are here worshiping today. Uh, This text that we're gonna study is evidence of something. There's a unity to the message that God has handed down to us. There's a unity to the scriptures that God has inspired his people to write and to treasure and to hand down to generations. There's evidence actually in this room as well. The fact that you and I are sitting in this room today is evidence that the promises of God in the past have come to some level of fulfillment. That thousands and thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands of miles away, as God spoke to Abram, 
and said that I will bless you and through you and your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That that promise, that plan of God has integrity, veracity, that it's being accomplished, fulfilled, worked out. The fact that you and I are sitting here, the fact that we have brothers and sisters from all over the world, the fact that we have these unified scriptures is evidence that we serve a God who has a plan, who has communicated his promise, and a God who is willing to make that come about. And the way he wants to do that is through you and me. I have a profound thought for you this morning that you may not have heard before, so be ready, write it down. We engage the mission of God because we are the people of God. You're welcome. See you later. (laughs) How'd you get that one? Did you read the piece of paper on the door? Yes, I did. Thank you. It really isn't profound. We do this thing, like communicate the gospel, because it's who we are. It's who we were always meant to be. Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image. People, man and woman, God made humanity. And he gives them a command, a commission to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because he wanted his image to spread across the world. He wanted his name to be made famous in all places. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and multiply my followers, my name, in all places. Why? Because God desires for his name to be made famous. Why? Because it is only in the Lord, our God, that we have hope in this life and the life to come. It is only by putting faith in this God that you and I have any hope of making it of living the abundant life that you were made to live, the full life in the midst of sin and struggle and chaos. This text today is one of my favorite texts because it comes from one of my favorite books. I don't know where you're at in terms of your devotional thoughts on Revelation. Some of you may be avoiders because it's confusing or people make it weird or maybe you are overzealous about it because you're one of the weird ones um, who probably got taught it by some weird ones as well. It's okay. It's only, it's not your fault. Um, It is your fault if you keep believing. Um, But the thing about Revelation is it wasn't actually meant to be this chronological roadmap so that people in 2022 could understand what's going to happen in the future so that we could deem some political leader as the Antichrist, who John and his followers would have never heard of or cared about. Revelation was actually meant to be an encouragement. Revelation is beautiful. Revelation is this wondrous, incredible book that God gave to a guy named John as he was on an island because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. He wouldn't stop. Roman said stop, he didn't stop. So they put him in prison. Side note, if you're gonna do something illegal, there's two places you wanna be put in prison. 
Number one, there is a place outside of Buena Vista, Colorado that I don't know how you get into that prison, but that's the one you wanna go to. So Buena Vista, write it down. The second one is the island of Patmos. It's in the Mediterranean and it is gorgeous. So if you're going to keep talking about Jesus and the government's gonna get really angry at you, Buena Vista or Patmos, those are your top two options. That was free, you're welcome. The admission of God for the people of God um, was being given by God, communicated to John for a specific group of people at a specific time. Revelation was a letter given to people like you and me who lived about 2,000 years ago that were facing suffering and persecution, hardship because of their faith in Jesus. And as the world around them looked chaotic, as they were suffering, as they were wondering, is this really it? God, do you see what's going on? Can you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? As those thoughts were rumbling either in their head or out of their mouths, God responded, and he gave them a word, as God so often does. He gave them a word, and that word is revelation. And God speaks to these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And he says, I know you think I don't see, but I see. I know your works. I know what you've been going through. Your, your patient endurance, your being thrown in prison. I know you've been slandered in your communities. I know you've been ostracized by your families. I see it. I promise you I see it. I am aware of it. I hear your prayers. They're like an incense that flows up to my throne. I, I smell it. I hear it. I promise you, I'm not ignoring you. And he also says, some of you, I see that you're not being faithful to me. You're worshiping someone other than me. You've forgotten your first love. You're doing things you weren't made to do. And these two groups of people, he says to the faithful, stay faithful. Stay faithful to the point of even death, and I will give you the crown of life. He doesn't say I'm going to completely protect you and keep you from all harm. No, he actually says whatever comes, stay faithful. And I'll give you the crown of life. To those who are not worshiping him, who are living in sin, he says, repent. I'm the only one made to be worshiped. I'm not made. You are made. And I am the one that made you. And I made you to worship me. It's time to repent. He gives these messages to these churches, to these people like you and me, because he sees them and he hears them. And then Revelation 4 and 5, we see this throne room, this one on the throne who was, who is, and who is to come. This God who made all things, who is worthy to be praised. And then in Revelation 5, we see this lion, no, this lamb, who is also worthy of worship. The only being worthy of worship is God. This lamb isn't like any other lamb, any other lion, any other person. This lamb is Jesus the Son. And he is being worshipped because he is worthy. 
And you have this interesting moment in chapter 5, and there's this scroll, and some level is this plan of God to be put out throughout history. And no one can open it, because no one is found worthy. And John cries, and he wonders, how will we know? How will we see God's plan fulfilled throughout history? And then the Lamb speaks up. He comes forth, and he is able to open this scroll. He is able to break these seals. And in chapter 6, we see these seals begin to open. The first seal, the second seal, third seal, fourth seal. The wrath of God is being poured out on all those who are unwilling to repent of their wickedness. The time has come. But then the fifth seal is interesting. The fifth seal is a group of people who are already dead. A group of people who are dead because they were willing to stay faithful to Jesus even unto death. The martyrs. The people who were faithful, even unto death. And they are wondering, how long? How long, O Lord? Don't you see? We've died for you. And the people who killed us are still walking the streets. The people who killed us are still in power. The people who killed us seem like they're in control. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? He does two things. Number one, he gives them a white robe, symbolizing their victory, their faithfulness, symbolizing the purity that they have been given because of Christ, symbolizing these new clothes, these lives that have been washed by red blood, the blood of the lamb. They've been given these. Salvation is in hand. But he says, just a little while longer. Longer. How, how much Longer. Until the fullness of the number of people who must die because of me have come. That's an interesting response. A little strange. Wait, you're going to let more people die? Yeah. Why? Because, if you remember a few weeks ago, God's character is that he desires for people to come to a knowledge of him. It's God's desire that even the wicked would repent and come to a knowledge of him. And so as God is patient with you and me and people like you and me, we wait and we faithfully endure whatever comes. And enter Revelation chapter 7. The first part of Revelation 7, which we didn't read, gives a vision of the people of God from an earthly perspective a limited, countable number of people who have remained faithful to Jesus and God is giving his seal, his stamp of approval to, saying, these are mine. They are mine. They worship me. They bear my name. They bear my image. And I will redeem them. But Revelation 7 verse 9 starts something new. A cosmic picture. Picture not from an earthly perspective, but a heavenly perspective. A picture not from where you and I walk and the time and the places, but a picture from a time yet to be. A time of the triumphant, eternal, global church. All people from all places at all times who have put their faith in the living God. Let's read Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked 
And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, this is an interesting text, a beautiful text that does a lot. One of the things this text does is it confirms that the promises God made in the past, he will bring about in the future. The video we watched was evidence of that. The text we have is evidence of that. You and I being here is evidence of that. That what God promised in the past, he is going to bring about in the future. That people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation will come to follow him. Um, This text is interesting because, you know, one of the texts that was a impactful on my own journey was Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. During this great sermon from Jesus, he says, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Few find it. And so I read Revelation 7, 9, and I wonder which one's right. Um, Is it true that few will find this path, or is it this Vast multitude that no one could number. Which one's right? The Bible seems to be making a contradiction. Side note, if you ever think the Bible's contradicting, you're probably interpreting the Bible wrong. You're probably not seeing it right, and you need to do a little bit more work because guess what? The Bible actually doesn't contradict itself. What Matthew 7.14 is saying is that at any one time, in any one place, in any one location, in any one city, there's probably less people that will be willing to follow Jesus even to the point of death. At any one time, in any one place, amongst any one people, few are going to willingly put their faith in and follow Jesus because it is the hard road. Few will find it. But what Revelation 7 is saying, and what Jesus is not arguing, is this. Over the course of time, there will be innumerable people who are his, who put their faith in him. He wasn't lying when he said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, more numerable than the stars in the sky, that no one could number, more than the sand of the seashore. He wasn't lying when he said that. He meant that. At any one time, it may be very few that willingly put their faith in and follow Jesus. Elijah and his remnant were few compared to those in the world who were unwilling to follow Jesus. But if you look at the course of time in all places, the reality is there will be many, a vast multitude, a great number that no one could count at a glance who will put their faith in and follow Jesus. Why? Because that is what God desires, and that was God's plan. And that's good. I'm encouraged by that fact, that there is a great multitude, a vast number. Revelation 7 is also a glimpse into the end in order to encourage and sustain God's people in the now. 
We've looked a lot in the past and been encouraged by the past so that we know how to live now. And now as we look ahead, we also want to go in light of the end. We want to live now. We want to go now with the end in mind, with this image of Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10 in mind. We need to remember what God said in Genesis 12, that God will bless all the people of the earth through Abraham and his descendants, his offspring. We need to remember 1 Kings 8. Even the foreigner who has come from a distant land because they heard your great name, they will come and pray, and all the peoples of the earth will know your name. We need to remember the prophets like Ezekiel, who God comes and says, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live, repent. We look back on texts like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Texts like Matthew chapter 28, 28, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. Like Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses. Your words in your life will be a testimony in Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. Wherever you are now and wherever I will send you to the very ends of the earth. And then Paul's words, I urge that prayers be made for all people. Because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Revelation 7 is the text that all these other texts anticipate. Revelation 7 verse 9 is a glimpse into the fulfillment of God's promises in the past. Um, Revelation 7 verse 9 teaches us some other things as well. It gives us this cosmic view of this triumphant, eternal, global church, a diverse people from every tongue, nation, tribe, language, which means that there's no room to hate people. You can't read Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and deduce... Therefore, I can hate people because they look different than me. Therefore, I can hate people because they're not from the same place as me. Because they have a different cultural background than me. Because they sound different than me. Because they have a different net worth than me. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 leaves no room for that because the character of God leaves no room for that. 1 John says that if you have hate in your heart toward a person, you actually don't have the love of God in your heart. If you have hate in your heart toward a person for whatever reason, the love of God is not in your heart. I, I hate people who are racist. You know that? I hate racist people. And I hate those people because they hate people. And I have an excuse to hate people because... Other people hate people. Actually, we don't. We don't have an excuse to hate people who vote different than us. We don't have an excuse to hate people 
who look different than us. We don't have an excuse to hate people, period, no matter what they've said or done to you. But don't you know they hurt me? Don't you know what they did? I, I don't know what they did. God does. He sees it, and he alone will make it right. Vengeance belongs to our God. Your job is not vengeance. Your job is to take the good news of Jesus Christ to all people of every language, every skin color, every financial background, every culture. That's what I've built you to do. I have built you to do a specific task. Who you are, you belong to me, you're my image bearers, and what I don't need from you is to hate other image bearers. What I need from you is to love people made in my image. That's what I need. And the way you love them is by be willing to share the good news of them. Listen to Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 12. You were once without Christ, all of us, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners of the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, thank you, thank you, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, we who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he is our peace. You know what God did that you and I didn't deserve? He made peace with us, even while we were still sinners, even before you and I were actually born. He did a thing to make us able to have a right relationship with him, even though we were wicked and rebellious and ignorant of him and wicked toward other people, hateful toward others made in his image, cursing others made in his image. He made peace through his blood, but not just with him. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away in peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you and I, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens and the saints and members of God's household. What God did in Jesus is he broke down barriers not just between us and God but between you and me. He takes people who've been at war and says you can be family. He takes people who have hurt other people and says you can be family, you can be new. He takes people who are broken and divided and says you can be united. And it's only possible through the peace that he extends. It can't be accomplished through a law. The law cannot change a single heart. It can only be accomplished through the blood of Jesus who tears down walls of hostility, who removes all hostility so that not only can we have peace with God, but we can have peace with each other once again so that we can meet people in Nepal and 
Ghana and Mexico and Poland and all across the world and have a unity that is beyond all understanding because we have a unity that is founded on Christ. Revelation chapter 7 is beautiful. I don't know if you've noticed, but this picture of this future full people of God, all the people at all time, after Jesus has returned, made all things new, are worshiping God, and as John sees them, as John hears them, he notices that they're different. That's strange. Jim did an exercise a long time ago in a class as you close your eyes and think through all those who will be with you in heaven, what do you see? What do they look like? What do you hear? What do they sound like? John actually got to see. He actually got to hear. And they were different. They weren't just this monolithic people. They were unique still. What, their differences didn't matter nearly as much. God isn't trying to make them all the same. He's not trying to make us all the same. What he wants is for us all to worship the same Jesus. That is it. He's not interested in you pushing your language or your culture or your money on others. He's interested in you bowing the knee to Jesus. Only then can we have peace with God and peace with each other. Only then can the wall of hostility be broken down. The next thing I want to draw our attention to from this text is just how many people are there. We've talked about it already. The fact that there is a vast multitude that no one can count is, again, evidence to the faithfulness of God, to his promises of old. Jeremiah 33, 19 is an interesting text, an interesting text. Um, He says this. The Lord, speaking through Jeremiah, says, if you can break my covenant with the day, if you can stop the rotation of the earth, the orbit of the earth, if you can stop the order of creation, and my covenant with the night so that day and night cease to come at their regular time, then also my covenant with my servant David may be broken. If that could happen, then he would not have a son reigning on his throne, and the Levitical priests would not be my ministers. Even as the stars of the heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so too I will make innumerable the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me. If I fail to establish the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I might also reject the descendants of Jacob and my servant David, but in fact, I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. This text is saying what we've been talking about this whole time. You're more likely, you, as you sit there, to be able to stop how the earth moves in this galaxy than you are to get God to break his covenant with his people. In other words, it can't happen. It won't happen. God says it, and so he's going to do it. God promises it, so he's going to accomplish it. He desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all the nations to hear about him, to come to him in prayer. And so what is he going to do? He's going to send his people to take his name and to take his mission to the ends of the earth so that vast multitudes, great numbers, so much that you and I couldn't count them, will come to bow the knee to him. That is what God wants. You're more likely to stop the rotation of the earth 
than you are to see God break his covenant. And that, brothers and sisters, should give us hope and it should give us courage to engage the mission of God. But we've been talking about that for going on our fifth week now. Not as if we haven't talked about it before this. But I want to close this series with just some simple things. Simple things that the text teaches us about how to engage the mission of God. First, as you struggle, stand firm in the victory of Jesus. And what I don't mean is what James means when he says, whenever you face trials of various kinds, persevere. Yes, you need to do that. Obviously, James says to do that. What I mean is as you struggle in relation to engaging the mission of God, stand firm. John says in 1 John, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus, John, Paul, assume that you'll be hated because you are engaging the mission of God, because you are putting the stumbling block who is Jesus in front of people. I have a question. Do you have anyone who hates you right now because of your faith in Jesus? Do you have anyone who is slandering you because you keep trying to bring up Jesus? Any family members who are ostracizing you or would rather not engage you because of how much you keep talking about Jesus? Do you keep seemingly to talk about God and the gospel? As you struggle, stand firm. Are you struggling? A friend of mine came in and taught a class for me this week, and he said, think of three people who you know don't know Jesus, like names, faces. Can you do it? A couple of of us could do it. Five. Can you do five? Mm, Harder. Ten. Ten people who don't know Jesus. Names who don't know Jesus. Crickets in a room. Why is that? Why do we struggle so much to engage the mission of God? To live out this commission that God has given us, entrusted to us. We know the mission of God reached us. We know God sent someone. God saved us by sending someone to us, speaking to us. And yet we have such a hard time engaging the mission of God. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, We all kind of know this basic idea that in order to be healthy in our brain, in our body, we need sleep, we need exercise, we need good quality food. But in order to be spiritually vital, there are things we need, basic things we need as well. You're not surprised. We need the word of God. We need prayer. We need fellowship with the believers. But just as much, we need to engage the mission of God. I'd be willing to bet that if you have faced a time of spiritual stagnation in your life, there is a direct correlation with a lack of engaging the mission of God in your life. If you've ever felt just not abundant life, not vibrant life, I guess 
is probably not of an engagement with the mission of God in your life. I'd be willing to say that if there's not anyone that hates you because of your faith in Jesus and you talking about Jesus, it's because you're not talking about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. And how will they hear unless someone tells them? So Paul says, faith comes by believing. Believing comes after hearing. They can't hear unless someone says it. And somebody needs to go. Who's going to go? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, that he has an unceasing anguish within him. Something, just a pit within him. Because he knows there are people, there are faces, there are names who are unwilling to bend the knee to Jesus. And it breaks his heart. And he says, I would be accursed if it meant that they could come in. i got to confess to you, it has been me in the past. I'd much rather be Jonah sitting up on a hill under a nice, comfortable piece of shade, watching things descend into chaos, watching this world eat itself, than to go immerse myself into it. It is easier for me to insulate myself with all of you, my brothers and sisters already in Christ, and to enjoy our fellowship, to to just spend time in the word, to just spend time in prayer, than to go out there. It's hot out there. It's hard out there. People treat me bad out there. At least I know you'll forgive me when I do something stupid. At least I know you'll still love me if I don't say the right thing. I don't know what's gonna happen if I say it to them. I think one of the reasons we don't engage the mission of God is because we're scared of how people are gonna react. We're scared we don't know what to say. The reality is God has made you to engage his mission. And therefore, he's equipped you to do everything you need, to have everything you need on his mission. You don't know what to say? The word will tell you. You don't know when to say it? The spirit will lead you, and it's probably yes. His answer is probably yes, you should say it. Just say it well. And not just what you say, but sometimes even how you say it. Your speech should be seasoned with salt. We should speak the truth in love. The most loving thing you can do is speak the truth of the gospel to someone, to put the stumbling block of the cross in front of people. He's given us the church to train us. Like my job is to train you, to help guide you, to encourage you, that when moms and dads with their babies come up here, it's it's part of my job to help equip them with the tools they need to speak to their kids about Jesus. Any one of us on staff would love nothing more than to have lunch with you, to help train you, to help equip you in the scriptures so that you are prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And that's actually the second thing. As you live, you need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. You do. As you live, as you speak, people should be able to recognize that there's something unique about you and you should be able to give witness, testimony to Jesus about that different thing in you. You need to be prepared, and you can be prepared. You have everything you need to be prepared. And you need to 
be trained by the word, be trained by fellow believers to be submissive to the Holy Spirit in these things. And lastly, as you go, we are to make disciples. As you struggle, stand firm. As you live, be prepared. And as you go, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. As you go to class, pray for opportunities and take advantage of the opportunities. Have the courage to speak the gospel. As you go to work, you probably know those who don't follow Jesus. Seek out, make happen a conversation about Jesus. There are pieces of paper in your bulletin that have opportunities for people in this church to answer needs around the world that different missionary partners of ours have. They're asking, saying, would you consider, would you pray about coming and sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it? There are financial ways to support these missionaries. The question is not what, it's how. We all need to be engaged in the mission of God because we are the people of God. The only question is how. Pray, tell me you'll pray and ask God how he may want to use you to engage his mission. And as we close, think through this question. Who might God want to save in the world by sending you? Reflect on that as we prepare for communion.